Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? The Amorous Ghost by Edith Bagnold. It was five o'clock on a summer morning. The birds, who had woken at three, had long scattered about their duties. The white plain house, blinkered and green shuttered, stood four square to its soaking lawns, and up and down the grass, his snow boots planting dark blots on the grey dew, walked the owner. His hair was uncombed. He wore his pyjamas and an overcoat, and at every turn at the end of the lawn, he looked up at a certain window, that of his own and his wife's bedroom, where, as on every other window on the long front, the green shutters lay neatly back against the wall, and the cream curtains hung down in heavy folds. The owner of the house, strangely and uncomfortably on his lawns instead of in his bed, rubbed his chilly hands and continued his tramp. He had a watch on his wrist, but when the stable clock struck six, he entered the house, and passing through the still hall, he went up to his bathroom. The water was lukewarm in the taps from the night before, and he took a bath. As he left the bathroom for his dressing room, he heard the stirring of the first housemaid in the living room below, and at seven o'clock he rang for his butler to lay out his clothes. As the same thing had happened the day before, the butler was half prepared for the bell, yawning and incensed, but ready-dressed. "'Good morning,' said Mr. Templeton rather suddenly. It was a greeting which he never gave, but he wished to try the quality of his voice. Finding it steady, he went on and gave an order for a melon from the greenhouse. For breakfast he had very little appetite, and when he had finished the melon he unfolded the newspaper. The door of the dining-room opened, and the parlour-maid and housemaid came in and gave him their notice. "'A month from today, sir,' repeated the parlour-maid to bridge the silence that followed. "'It's nothing to do with me,' he said in a low voice. "'Your mistress is coming home tonight. You must tell her of these things.' They left the room. "'What's the matter with those girls?' said Mr. Templeton to the butler who came in. "'They haven't spoken to me, sir,' said the butler untruly. "'But I gather there has been an upset.' "'Because I chose to get up early on a summer morning,' asked Mr. Templeton with an effort. "'Yes, sir. And there were other reasons.' "'Which were?' Uh, the housemaid, said the butler with detachment, as though he were speaking of the movements of a fly, has found your bedroom, sir, strewn with clothes. With my clothes, said Mr. Templeton. Um, no, sir. Mr. Templeton sat down. A nightgown, he said weakly, as though appealing for human understanding. Yes, sir. More than one. Two, sir. Good God, said Mr. Templeton, and walked to the window, whistling shakily. The butler cleared the table quietly and left the room. There's no question about it, said Mr. Templeton under his breath. She was undressing. Behind the chair. After breakfast, he walked down his two fields and through a wood with the idea of talking to Mr. George Casson. But George had gone to London for the day and Mr. Templeton faced with the polish on the front door, the polish on the parlour-maid, and the sober look of the morning post folded on the hall table, felt that it was just as well that he had not, after all, to confide his incredible story. 
He walked back again, steadied by the air and exercise. I'll telephone to Hetty, he decided, and make sure that she's coming tonight. He rang up his wife, told her that he was well, that all was well, and heard with satisfaction that she was coming down that night after her dinner party, catching the 11.30, arriving at 12.15 at the station. There's no train before at all, she said. I sent round to the station to see, and owing to the strike, they run none between 7.15 and 11.30. Then I'll send the car to the station, and you'll be here at half-past twelve. I may be in bed, as I'm tired. You're not ill? No, I've had a bad night. It was not until the afternoon, after a good luncheon and a whisky and soda, that Mr. Templeton went up to his bedroom to have a look at it. The cream curtains hung lightly, blowing in the window. By the fireplace stood a high-wing grandfather chair, upholstered in patterned rep. Opposite the chair and the fireplace was a double bed, in one side of which Mr. Templeton had lain working at his papers the night before. He walked up to his chair, put his hands in his pockets, and stood looking down at it. Then he crossed to the chest of drawers and drew out a drawer. On the right-hand side were Hetty's vests and chemises, neatly pressed and folded. On the left was a pile, folded but not pressed, of Hetty's nightgowns. Mr. Templeton noted the crumples and creases on the silk. Evidence, evidence, he said, walking to the window, that something happened in this room after I left it this morning. The maids believe they found a strange woman's nightgowns crumpled on the floor. As a matter of fact, they're Hetty's nightgowns. I suppose a doctor would say I'd done it myself in a trance. Two nights ago, he thought, looking again at the bed. It seemed a week. The night before last, as he lay working, propped up on pillows and cushions and his papers spread over the bed, he had glanced up, absorbed, at two o'clock in the morning, and traced the pattern on the grandfather chair as it stood, facing the empty grate with its back towards him, just as he had left it when he had got into bed. It was then that he had seen the two hands hanging idly over the back of the chair as though an unseen owner was kneeling in the seat. His eyes stared, and a cold fear wandered down his spine. He sat without moving and watched the hands. Ten minutes passed, and the hands were withdrawn quickly as though the occupant of the chair had silently changed its position. Still he watched, propped, stiffening on his pillows, and as time went on, he fought the impression down. Tired, he said. One's read of it, the brain reflecting something. His heart quietened, and cautiously he settled himself a little lower and tried to sleep. He did not dare straighten the litter of papers around him, but with the light on, he lay there till the dawn lit the yellow paint on the wall. At five he got up, sleepless, his eyes on the back of the grandfather chair, and without his dressing gown or slippers, he left the room. In the hall he found an overcoat and his warm snow boots behind a chest, and unbolting the front door he tramped the lawn in the dew. On the second night, last night, he had worked as before. So completely had he convinced himself after a day of fresh air that his previous night's experience had been the result of his own imagination, his eyesight, and his mind hallucinated by his work, 
that he had not even remembered, as he had meant to do, to turn the grandfather chair with its seat towards him. Now, as he worked in bed, he glanced from time to time at its patterned and concealing back, and wished vaguely that he had thought to turn it round. He had not worked more than two hours before he knew that there was something going on in the chair. Who's there? he called. The slight movement he had heard ceased for a moment, then began again. For a second, he thought he saw a hand shoot out at the side, and once he could have sworn he saw the tip of a mound of hair showing over the top. There was a sound of scuffling in the chair, and some object flew out and landed with a bump on the floor below the field of his vision. Five minutes went by, and after a fresh scuffle a hand shot up and laid a bundle, white and stiff, with what seemed a small arm hanging on the back of the chair. Mr. Templeton had had two bad nights and a great many hours of emotion. When he grasped that the object was a pair of stays with a suspender swinging from them, something bumped unevenly in his heart. A million black motes like a cloud of flies swam in his eyeballs. He fainted. He woke up and the room was dark, the light off, and he felt a little sick. Turning in bed to find comfort for his body, he remembered that he had been in the middle of a crisis of fear. He looked about him in the dark and saw again the dawn on the curtains. Then he heard a chink by the washstand, several feet nearer to his bed than the grandfather chair. He was not alone. The thing was still in the room. By the faint light from the curtains, he could just see that his visitor was by the washstand. There was a gentle clinking of china and the sound of water, and dimly he could see a woman standing. Undressing, he said to himself, washing. His gorge rose at the thought that came to him. Was it possible that the woman was coming to bed? It was that thought that had driven him with a wild rush from the room and sent him marching for a second time up and down his grey and dewy lawns. And now, thought Mr. Templeton, as he stood in the neat bedroom in the afternoon light and looked around him, Hetty's got to believe in the unfaithful or the supernatural. He crossed to the grandfather chair and, taking it in his two hands, was about to push it onto the landing. But he paused. I, I leave it where it is tonight, he thought, and go to bed as usual. For both our sakes, I must find out something more about all of this. Spending the rest of the afternoon out of doors, he played golf after tea, and eating a very light dinner, he went to bed. His head ached badly from lack of sleep, but he was pleased to notice that his heart beat steadily. He took a couple of aspirin tablets to ease his head and with a light novel settled himself down in bed to read and watch. Hetty would arrive at half-past twelve, and the butler was waiting up to let her in. Sandwiches, nicely covered from the air, were placed ready for her on a tray in the corner of the bedroom. It was now eleven. He had an hour and a half to wait. She may come at any time, he said, thinking of his visitor. He had turned the grandfather chair towards him so that he could see the seat. 
quarter of an hour went by, and his head throbbed so violently that he put the book on his knees and altered the lights, turned out the brilliant reading lamp, switched on the light which illuminated the large face of the clock over the mantelpiece, so that he sat in shadow. Five minutes later, he was asleep. He lay with his face buried in the pillow, the pain still drumming in his head, aware of his headache even at the bottom of his sleep. Dimly, he heard his wife arrive, and murmured a hope to himself that she would not wake him. A slight movement rustled around him as she entered the room and undressed, but his pain was so bad that he couldn't bring himself to give a sign of life, and soon, while he clung to his half-sleep, he felt the bedclothes gently lifted and heard her slip in beside him. Feeling chilly, he drew his blanket closer around him. It was as though a draught were blowing about him in the bed, dispelling the mists of sleep and bringing him to himself. He felt a touch of remorse at his lack of welcome, and putting out his hand, he sought his wife's beneath the sheet. Finding her wrist, his fingers closed around it. She too was cold, strange, icy, and from her stillness and silence, she appeared to be asleep. A cold drive from the station, he thought, and held her wrist to warm it as he dozed again. She's positively chilling the bed, he murmured to himself. He was awakened by a roar beneath the window and the sweep of a light across the wall of the room. With amazement, he heard the bolts shoot back across the front door. On the illuminated face of the clock over the fireplace, he saw the hand standing at twenty-seven minutes past twelve. Then, Mr. Templeton, still gripping the wrist beside him, heard his wife's clear voice in the hall below. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? So that was The Amorous Ghost by Edith Bagnold also known as Lady Jones after her marriage. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about her and very little about the story. And I'll, I'll first of all begin by saying it's a very short story. And that is kind of because we've done some very long stories. We've done Oak of Oakhurst, which was three episodes. We've done, and these are basically novellas, and we've done The Grey Woman, and that which was long and so I thought I needed to do a short one because I'm moving house, still in the process of moving house. So I've got bits and bobs everywhere. So I thought I'd do a short one. I didn't want you to miss out, um, but there we are. So let me tell you about Edith. So Edith Bagnold was born in 1889 in Rochester, Kent. And she was, her father was a colonel in the British Army. And she spent most of her youth in Jamaica, which of course was a British colony in those days. And there she learned to ride and enjoyed riding. And that is important because her most famous piece was National Velvet, which she published in 1935, which was made into a famous movie starring Elizabeth Taylor, if I'm not, um, not mistaken. And that was, that was she, she was a prolific writer, but that was her most, that was her greatest success. She came back to London and went to art school and, she, this was about in 1909 or so when she returned to London, or I say returned to London, but came to London. And she lived a bohemian life. She, she went to art school. She lived in uh, Soho. 
she had an affair with, she became the assistant of an Irish-American author called Frank Harris, who apparently was 56 at the time and she was 22. And he seduced her in the upper room of the Café Royal. And, not, and she really liked this. Um, she met him in a bookshop in, off Charing Cross Road. And she said that he made sin seem glorious, even though he was a short, fat, ageing cad of 56. So she worked as an assistant on one of his magazines and he went to prison and she stood by him. But then she had affairs with um, Romanian princes, uh, was um, mixing with the aristocracy and the bohemian artists. And so she was very bohemian. Now, in the First World War, she joined up as a nurse and but was very critical of the way it was run and wrote about how badly the hospital was run. So she got fired. And then she became a driver for the army in France in, during the First World War. And she wrote a, a memoir about that. Then, so she lived this bohemian life. She was a bit of a wild child, but not, not from a poor back background. I should say that when she went to London, her mother enrolled her in a very progressive school. Um, was it a Montessori school? It was before Montessori, but it was that kind of thing. which is extraordinary, really. You would imagine that her British colonel father would be rather establishmentarian, if that's a word, establishment anyway. But she, he raised a bit of a rebel, even though she mixed with the upper class artists and bohemians, so she didn't slum it. But it wasn't respectable. Yeah, and in 1920, she married the man who was the head of the Reuters news agency, Sir Roderick Jones and became Lady Jones, and they had a big house there in Rottingdean near Brighton, in a house that had belonged to Edward Byrne Jones, one of the pre-Raphaelites, and she had a proper, you know, gardeners, chauffeurs, two gardeners, a groom, a strapper, nine indoor servants. She had a house in London decorated by Luttians in Hyde Park Gate, and she gave grand parties, and her neighbours there were Winston Churchill and Jacob Epstein, the sculptor. So, you know, she had a bit of a, you know, a quite exciting life, I would have thought. I'm actually working my way through a book of ghost stories from the 1980s, well, it's published in the 1980s, called 65 Great Spine Chillers. The editor of this is Mary Danby, and uh, Mary Danby's edited a lot of horror story books. And there's a terrible, terrible review on Amazon of the Fifth Fontana Book of Great Horror Stories says, and this is your typical Amazon review, I've had a few like this, absolutely the worst horror anthology book I've read so far, and I wish Mary Danby wouldn't include her own awful stories in these books. But actually, I think that Mary Danby has made some very good um, selections of stories in this particular anthology, and I'll probably be reading one or two of them out. For the next six to eight weeks, I'm going, I'm going back to Edinburgh next week for a week, but then I'm going to be living with my mother for six weeks or so until our new house is ready and all our stuff's in storage. So what I'm doing at the moment is driving up and down the road with carfuls of boxes, which in a bizarre way I am quite enjoying. I, my daughter's helped me move into this storage place and it's an old warehouse. And, you know, Catherine said to me, this would be a fantastic place to write a horror story. And I thought, you know, you're right. Imagine what you've got is this empty and mostly it's empty with these all these doors corridors full of doors with locks on them and it goes on and on and on and there's nobody there that's got to be a good that has got to be a good idea so 
if you if you come across a story by me in later months and years that features a storage, you know that was the inspiration. And often when you write a story, it just comes from an idea like that and you picture a scene and, and then you do you develop the rest out of that. Funnily enough, one of the comments on the YouTube channel was, did I have any tips for writing a ghost story? This neatly segues into the amorous ghost because I think this is a little gem. You know, it is tongue in cheek. By this time, the ghost story had gone from its gothic origins in the late 1700s and it had almost run out of the ability to take itself seriously. It was later revivified, if that's the word, by people like um, Aikman in the 50s. I'm, I'm leaving Lovecraft and the whole weird tales thing to one side. I'm talking about the classic English ghost story, which had become, become almost written with a wry smile. And this is what this is as well. It's not particularly scary, although there's a little chill at the end. So how would you write a story? Well, first of all, you, you set it up, first of all, and there are little clues throughout, such as the nightgowns, and you, you twist it. You, you create misinterpretations. So um, the interpretation, of course, is that he's been having an affair. I mean, it's a short story, so that doesn't last long, but that is introduced, and we think, aha, and then at the end you do a twist. This is it. This is, it's really one idea that you take through, you set up for the twist, and at the end, and it, we know this is kind of coming. But she does it well in that we're led to believe the wife's come home and then we, we you know, oh, she's very cold. That's almost like uh, what big teeth you have, grandmother. What, you know, what big eyes you have, grandmother. It's like, oh, she's very cold. It must be the, the chill from the drive to the station. And he doesn't realise, but we do realise. And then his wife comes and he's still holding this cold wrist of a corpse. And so it's kind of funny. Blythe spirit, you know, Noel Coward's Blythe spirit, the funny, funny ghost, charming ghost, even Ghostbusters, I suppose. And then we just, from that idea that she's chilling the bed, we get the idea how unpleasant it must be to wake up, to reach under the covers and find a corpse. And then, you know, so I think that is a genuine chill. It was for me anyway. And, and I think it's a very neatly constructed story. So basically uh, there's some misleading in that, oh yes, he's having an affair, but it doesn't last long. And there's a twist at the end, and that's how you write one. Um, the whole thing is about withholding information. So the author knows everything and withholds information and presents it through different lenses. So there are three main types of this. So first of all, the reader and the character know the same amount of information. They're both pretty much in the dark. And you think of um, like something like Lost, the TV series Lost whereby um, nobody had a clue what was going on, neither the characters nor the, the, the viewers. Then, so that's when the reader and the character know exactly the same, right? But the, but the author knows more and is withholding it. It's the author who's withholding it then. The next bit is where the reader knows more than the character knows. And he, or I would say the reader guesses more than the character knows. So in this case, this is what we've got. We've got him lying in bed and he leans out, reaches out to his wife's cold wrist and he goes on and he still, it's, the penny still doesn't drop for him, but we've already tweaked it. We, we absolutely know what's going on. So that is the case in this, we know more than the reader knows. And then sometimes 
the character knows more than the reader knows. And that might well be the unreliable narrator because, you know, the, the narrator may be withholding information from the reader. Yeah. So those are the three main types. But the key is to withhold and then at the end reveal. If you don't, if you don't reveal, I think, and this is probably what happened for me with Lost, eventually we're like, yeah, I don't care anymore. I mean, you, I'm just don't care. You've just dragged it on for too long. So I think it's really important that in the end, all the, the ends are tied up. And when you don't tie the ends up, people are very dissatisfied. And that's, you know, this, the, the open-ended story. Well, we had one or two of them. But then they do not satisfy readers in the same way. You know, we like everything tied up in the end. Okay. So there we are. So that's me very briefly this time. It's not a long one this time. Indulge me. I'll be back soon. Um, I'm back when I can. I'm packing my microphone up because I'm going to be living out of boxes, but I'm hoping to get it out again. All right. Okay. Anyway, take care. Uh, Oh, yeah. um, So... You can become a patron to support the show, and a lot of people have been doing that, and that is totally great. You can sign up to Substack, which is a kind of similar idea. Um, why have I got two? It's a long story. I thought I was going to replace Patreon with Substack and just have it all streamlined, but it didn't work out like that. So I've got two ways you can sign up, or you can become a member on the YouTube channel. All of those three get ex- uh, extra stories, some of which are... Um, some of which I can get away with narrating to a club. But if I was doing it broadcast, it would conceivably be a breach of copyright. So there's some stories I can tell to a select group of friends, if you like, almost, that I can't necessarily just send out in a podcast or on a YouTube channel, okay? Um, that's about it. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?